Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin. What a week. The world is on fire. <laughs> well, the wor- the nation is on fire. The world is also on fire, but it's uh, very, uh, I feel the flame is much closer to home than, than ever before. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like um, every, every day I hear of a, of an, another friend uh, contracting the virus and, some of them being very sick, some of them not being very sick. Uh, just last night, you alerted us to someone in the wild goose community who is now on a ventilator. Um, yeah. And so I, I feel like there is so much happening that um, is a reflection of just how far we are from the kind of world that we really long for. Right. I mean, it's very difficult to put our focus on the important and the vital when, I don't know about you, but a lot of days I feel like a cat with a laser pointer. Like, Mm. I feel like I'm just like watching the dot like shift from one spot on the floor to the other and I'm chasing it around and I don't, um, I am, I have to make myself very intentional about stopping the chase and sinking into kind of a conversation, a topic, a piece of movement work, because otherwise there there's just so much happening that is um, that is both pertinent to the day, but also, you know, taking our mind off of how we do this work in a, in a, in a way that, that, you know, leads to freeness and liberation for all of us. Well, you know, chaos is designed to right uh, to do that very thing. But but we have to remember there is an order to chaos, and um, unless we are laser focused on um, our mission, uh, we we will be caught up in in the chaotic uh, mess that that is what we see. Um, but I'm hoping today we can get a little bit more clear on the work at hand and the ways in which to do the kind of work that is necessary. Yes, I am. Um, I think that, you know, we both are um, conscientious about how, um, how heavy and how overwhelming this all feels. And yet, um, we're, we're lucky today that we have a guest on with us that can not only help us understand, uh, how we got here, but also, uh, frame some some of the next steps for us in a way that give us and our listeners kind of practical tactics for getting our hands dirty in the work. 
Yeah. Um, we are welcoming today the Reverend Jeannie Alexander. Um, Jeannie is the director of the No Exceptions Prison Collective, which is an abolitionist organization that works with and on behalf of prisoners and their families. Um, she comes to this conversation from Nashville, just like you. Um, and uh, we'll let Jeannie tell our listeners a little bit more about herself and her work. Um, but uh, in the meantime, uh, this episode is one that uh, you may want to listen to a few times uh, just to get a handle on both how we got here and, and where we're headed. Jeannie, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much, Anna and Robin, for having me this morning. Yeah, we're glad we're glad that you could make it on such short notice. Um, everything's moving really rapidly these days, and so sure, <laughs> I appreciate the uh, I appreciate very much the invitation. So, just just for context, um, I think uh, it was Saturday that I was talking with. Um, our mutual friend, Reverend Lindsey Krinks, on text. And Lindsey asked me if I had seen your Facebook post. And of course, I had just gotten up and kind of getting into my day. I had not seen your post. And I asked if it was on Facebook. Lindsey said yes. And so I went there to look at your Facebook post. And from that, from reading that post, which I hope that you'll share with us, I then reached out to you and, and we started conversation. So would you share with us that Facebook post um, that, that you shared with the world on, on, that I read on Saturday? Absolutely, sure. It is far too early to call the takeover of the Capitol on January 6th by white nationalist fascist, a.k.a. Trump's army, a failed coup attempt. On the contrary, I see no evidence to suggest that it wasn't a success. Not only was Trump's death cult able to take control of the Capitol, the military literally stood down. And when multiple high-ranking members of Congress called for the deployment of the National Guard, the Department of Defense refused. What should be clear to everyone at this point is that mob entered the Capitol for the purpose of taking hostages and executing individuals who had, quote, failed Trump, namely Vice President Pence and enemies of Trump. As of today, four days later, Donald Trump, who is guilty of treason and sedition, has not been removed from office, nor have senators or representatives who aided and abetted the coup been removed from office and arrested. This is not what a failed coup attempt looks like. What we are witnessing at this moment is an active coup. State and federal government officials from the top down are all aware that there are plans by the same white nationalist fascist militias to take control of state capitals on January the 17th and D.C. on January the 20th. These are the same militias who are openly carrying assault rifles on the streets of America throughout 2020. If there is any intention by state and federal governments to stop this ongoing coup, then we should see states deploy their National Guard to state capitals prior to January 16th, and the military should have already been deployed to secure D.C., which should be on lockdown at this moment. That is not because a fascist 
is still in control. I see no reason to believe that these necessary actions will occur, which means that our government has been taken over by a fascist and the military has failed to defend and protect the election and our flawed but legitimate government. At this moment, everyone who isn't ready to capitulate to fascism needs to figure out their place in the resistance. Is your place community defense, medic, financial support, safe houses, etc.? Also, it's a bit late, but read On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. If the military stands down a second time on January 17th and a third time on January 20th, then mutual aid and resistance is our only hope. No one is coming to save us, and the hour is very late. Stay alert. Resist. Wow. What a post. I I feel like... Um, I feel like there's a lot of people who were shocked by what happened on January the 6th. And as someone who um, has a has a family member and many family members who have migrated from Latin America, who is very familiar with uh, Latin American governments, I was not shocked by what happened. Um, can you help us a little bit figure out um, how we got here and and what it means to participate in the work of building a more just and equitable world. Right. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, of course you weren't shocked, right? That's what's so interesting about this is that um, people who's experienced multi-generationally has been um, an experience of the United States with, family members from multiple generations being here and people have become so comfortable and complacent. And we have been sold so many lies in our culture. I mean, first and foremost, white supremacy, right? Um, which is at the foundation of all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's never been any reconstruction. There's never been any reparations. There's never been restoring or transformative justice. Um, so, I mean, this is what we're drowning in. Right. Um, and, and the rest of the world, I think, you know, I've read several commentaries since January the 6th with um, individuals from like Sri Lanka and other places saying, the rest of us are watching and we know you're in a coup and you've been completely unaware of this as it's been building for the past several years. Right. And so I think putting it in context, um, so I guess what I should say um, uh, you know, individuals might think, wait a minute, <laughs> so you work with a prison abolition organization. Um, and you work with insiders and their family members um, to disrupt and basically tear down the carceral complex. What does this have to do with fascism and, mm-hmm. um, and white supremacy? Um, and so just trying to position this a little bit, it has everything to do with it. Because um, in this country, we have an uninterrupted... Um, line in history that we can draw from chattel slavery to carceral slavery. Um, And we've never exercised the demon of slavery from our culture. Right. Um, Right. And so 
And, and, and in fact, just since you work with prison abolition, you know, we, what, what was once chattel slavery, we have, we have sort of funneled into what is now called the prison industrial complex, among other folds of, of slavery institutions. So while, while slavery might have gone away um, explicitly, there, there are implicit avenues of slavery that continue to diminish the lives of black and brown people. Right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, so um, it is the case that no longer is the intended money-making product of slavery, cotton, molasses, tobacco, you know, that sort of thing. It is caged humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I mean, it's still in our constitution, right? We still haven't dealt with this, the 13th amendment. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, the way we got there is understanding and connecting the dots. If we have, and what we're seeing again um, with Trump is white nationalists and the white nationalist church and white supremacists being emboldened by a leader who is not only a racist, but a fascist. Mm-hmm. And as that continues to grow, things are only going to get worse in our prisons. I mean, I, my, my ultimate fear, um, quite frankly, and, and if history is any indicator, this is not just paranoia, we have good reason to think this, is that if the fascists ultimately do take control and this country falls into fascism, then there will be, um, I, I mean, I don't know how to say this to not, I mean, this is all disturbing. So I'm, I'm just not going to mince words. And I think that you all will probably appreciate that. Yeah. My concern is when they start lining prisoners against the wall and just assassinating, just executing, regardless of what the sentence was, anyone they deem an undesirable, um, they will get rid of, you know, and that's the same for those of us who are still on the outside and have not been rounded up yet. So just looking at this realistically, there's there's absolutely a connection. Right. And there are microaggressions like that going on now, whether it whether it is starving, uh, limiting food, limiting medical help for several hours. I mean, we have an ongoing, you know, prison issue or, or jail issue down here in Chattanooga going on right now in real time. And so the I mean, while the aggressions themselves are not micro, they are micro to um, the, the thought of assassination. But I mean, th- th- this kind of, this kind of activity is happening in real time already. It just has not accelerated to the point of assassination or death to prisoners as an intentional act one after the next, after the, after the next. Right. Um, although certainly, um, Abuse and death um, and torture are not unknown within the Tennessee prison system. Um, that, that's for sure. But yeah, no, right. definitely. So I, I guess I started seeing, um, and, and please redirect me. Um, my mind goes in 50 directions at once. I guess I really began seeing the connections um, when Trump was elected. And when he was elected, I remember um, not so much within leftist networks because we already know it, but talking and having conversations with friends who are progressive and liberal um, and using the word fascism 
there was like this reluctance. We're like, oh, that's hyperbole. We don't need to go down there because we want people to take us seriously, that we have to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. We may not like him, but he's not a fascist. We're like, no, <laughs> he is a fascist. I mean, yeah. pay attention. You know, people have tried to compare these times to the 1960s, and I've constantly been pushing back and saying, oh, my God, no, look at Europe in the 1930s. This yeah. is like, this is a far better comparison, right? Um, and then after Charlottesville, there was this real um, growth, um, almost an exponential growth um, of like white nationalists, white supremacist organizations began to occur. They, they were already around, and we had been trying to educate the public on them, but something definitely shifted. And we began to see the numbers greatly increasing, not decreasing because of Charlottesville, but that was like a call to arms, right? And particularly with Trump saying, oh, there are good people and bad people on both sides. Um, And and again, of course, that connects back to fascism and the way that information is delivered. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see something absolutely happen in front of your eyes. And the fascists will reply, oh, no, that's not what happened. And they'll tell you the exact opposite thing happened. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, like um, at the Capitol on the 6th, we saw what happened. Everyone watched it. We know who took over the Capitol. And while they were doing it on the ground, uh, even like Governor Lee's pastor, Steve Berger, was saying, oh, this is actually Antifa doing this. It's like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, it's like we know that that's we absolutely know that's not what's happening, but that's the kind of thing they continue to sell. Right. So can it, can I just sort of um, ask a question here because I think about this. You know, there's there's a there's a particular pathology alive in the United States um, that has accelerated the occupation of white supremacy, um, and and it's rooted in unresolved trauma i think and that and that it it shows up in or we use language like oppression um and and uh, and the the oppression being the result of unresolved trauma is con- continues to to perpetuate um you know the the sickness that is alive in this country and so I know this is unpopular, but I, I feel very curious about sort of how we link together what you're saying with the the psychological drama that is that is playing out. A lot of people have have sort of hearkened to calling um, Trump a malignant narcissist, which we know that narcissism is the result of unresolved trauma among other things and how do we actually um build the kind of abolitionist framework that that you've been doing in light of the real trauma that exists for all of us Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I think, you know, in many cases, it's not just unresolved trauma. 
it's completely unrecognized, mm-hmm. right? Um, by thinking about, again, um, just because this is the work that I do, one of the things that's almost never talked about is trauma and connection to prisons and how much trauma is inflicted um, and how, you know, people hold that in their bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. trauma that people experience every single day and communities and neighborhoods um, and schools that are targeted, right? Um, it's almost the sort of thing that is so ubiquitous in our society that our children are accustomed to it, right? I mean, going into schools and immediately from the time they're in kindergarten being surrounded basically by the police, right? right, right. By all the people right? and this trauma that we carry. traumatizing, right? yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, what to do with thinking about Trump's own trauma? Um, this is not going to be popular to say, or maybe, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. It's popular. Not quite frankly, honestly, I, mean, I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, what I do know, um, is that, um, regardless of where it comes from, individuals and political movements can't be allowed to harm the greater good, to target people, um, and to promote their agenda, um, which is an agenda of death, right? So how to, how to build that, um, I mean, part of building that abolitionist framework is understanding that we're, I think this is a complicated question, um, we may need to flesh it out some more, but understanding we're never going to deal with trauma or, or get beyond trauma unless we can take bold steps of understanding that the very system we live in, and we cannot ever discount the role of capitalism in this as well. Right. Right. It's designed. It's like I tell people all the time that systems, that the prison systems in the United States are designed to do the exact opposite Mm-hmm. Of which you would ever want to do if you wanted people to heal, if you wanted communities to heal and to transform, and if you wanted to be able to make families and communities whole again, right? And to address the trauma that has occurred to people that led to a rip in the fabric of that community, that led to violence, that led to pain, that led to hurt. Right. Um, and, and that's not true just within the prison system. We've got to be able to stand back and look and understand that this our, our entire society is built on this myth of the rugged individual with no care really for the common good. You know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have to have discussions about things like universal health care. You know, I mean, we're filming a documentary right now. And one of the things that we see when we're talking about prisons and jails in rural areas, they have prisons and jails, but they don't have any health care. <laughs> um, so um, it's interesting. We live in a, a culture of trauma um, that absolutely targets black and brown bodies and it's dressed up in, in entertainment, you know, and, 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 distractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, uh, for us to figure out how to build a world that is grounded in the politics of abolition, which I see as life affirming systems and I'm I'm preaching in Atlanta this Sunday on abolitionist theology. I I think I think we have to uh, have a diversity of tactics to to even figure out how to steward abolitionist work in the face of of what 
looks, feels, tastes like fascism. Right. And I think that this is actually going to give us the opportunity to really do that because, I mean, think about the notion of community safety, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in a state that is ripe for fascism, we are taught that community safety means cops in cages. Right. I mean, that is, I mean, that's how, you know, you're already headed down the road to fascism mm -hmm. that it doesn't think about community safety and those needs that must be met to actually provide people with true safety and stability. So if we're talking about community safety, we aren't talking about um, house, like health security, housing security. We aren't talking about health care. We aren't talking about mental health care. We aren't talking about access to adequate, healthy foods. We aren't talking about access to good education um, and to transportation. Like all of these things we know and that we could do to make communities healthy and safer. We have no interest in that, right? right? We, we think about, so I think one of the results, um, one of the things for the reality, and I, and I mentioned this, I think, in the post that we're going to see if we do enter into the state of American fascism, um, which, like I said, I think that's where we're headed, um, is that we're going to have to understand and really develop um, mutual aid mm -hmm. um, and community defense. Um, and we are and, and, you know, we say so often, right, and we've, we've talked about this and said it over and over again during the uprisings this past year, that we keep us safe. You know, that's not just a chant, right? It's not just something that we hold. It's true. We keep us safe. Mm -hmm. And I think we're about to see what that really means. And the thing about abolition is so many people, I think, think about it in the negative and that, oh, that's a destruction of something, right? right. You're going to abolish. Right. But it is absolutely creative process because it's it's not the the sake of abolishing something just to abolish it oh you just want to tear down prisons and everybody out and that's what you're going to do that's it's like no oh my god we have to have abolition of harmful systems and traumatic systems and fascist systems in order to create and build together to co-create um, um a community which really does work toward the common good and provides for all of us and is also um, not rooted in white supremacy so right. that it just kind of remakes itself over into some like white progressive like dictatorship like we don't need that shit either um, I mean you know we've seen change in real movement quite frankly more often than not that is led by black women um, I've seen black and brown women so much leading the change there um, but, but I think um I don't know if you want to go into this, but I think what would also be helpful um, is if we kind of, if I could talk a little bit about this past year um, and things we were seeing on the ground and why I felt so confident or at least confident enough to write the post that I did. So Jeannie, I think you're completely right. What we, what we know about abolition work and, and what we understand is happening in real time has played out in, in many cases on the streets for the last year plus. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of an understanding about what you have seen and experienced um, in, in the last year and how you think the activity of the last year has led us to the point uh, to what happened at the Capitol on, on January 6th? 
Sure, um, definitely. So up until 2020, um, whenever working with um, other anti-fascists on the ground, when we would work to counter or to counter-demonstrate or provide community defense, um, when um, white nationalist and white supremacist organizations would show up in towns, um, you know, thinking about things like Montgomery Bell, right, where every year, you know, they've been able to, like, originally started by, like, Identity Europa, um, which became the American Identity Movement, having conferences there. Um, and being there to counter demonstrate what it used to look like is that um, there would be some police presence that would separate the two groups, right, wherever this happened. Um, and that began to, of course, disintegrate and dissolve with Charlottesville. But then even after Charlottesville, here in Tennessee for several years, there would still be that presence to kind of separate. And then I guess two years ago, it really became much more militant. So, for example, at the counter demonstrations at, at Montgomery Bell State Park, um, all of a sudden the prison system was involved. And so Strike Force, which is like uh, this very draconian, draconian talk about fascist looking uh, group of uh, guards in our Tennessee prisons, were there, were deployed to the park. Um, along with prison buses that would have taken us away had we been arrested um, en masse. And there were snipers on the roofs. Um, there was, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, and we thought, what is going on here? Because all of a sudden that began to look much more militant and they were much more aggressive toward us. Um, 2020, everything changed. And in 2020, um, I'll just give you, I'll list some of the, the organizations, other groups, fascist groups we've been dealing with um, for several years, but like pretty constantly in 2020s. Proud Boys, uh, Free Percenters, Boogaloo Boys, various militias, QAnon, um, Vanguard, which became Patriot Front, um, American Identity Movement, um, Adam Waffen, uh, of course, the Klan. They began showing up uh, heavily armed. Um, and as a result, uh, the police basically disappeared. The police presence disappeared. Right. So when we're in cities, so, and I mean, it didn't matter if we were in Georgia or Ohio or Tennessee or Kentucky or any of the other states where we've been this past year, the, the numbers continued to grow. So that there are times when we are facing down hundreds and hundreds of these like these fascist and white supremacists, heavily armed. They were all—I oh, mean, they were certainly um, armed better than the police, with not with not a cop in sight, right? Um, and the National Guard was deployed constantly last year, right, during the uprisings um, against those of us who were involved with demonstrations. Um, and so we know that they know how to deploy them, but always against us. So we've spent the past year on the ground, literally, basically fighting with both fascist and the National Guard and police. And we watched them. And I reported on this and I live streamed it all through 2020. We watched the fascists who showed up, the militias who showed up work with the National Guard and the police over and over. Um, in Stone Mountain last year, 
the police, sorry, that's my cat. Um, the police completely stood down when these militias were spraying us with bear mace. Right. And I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it sounds crazy to, to, tell, to talk about this, but I spent 2020 during this pandemic, during my best to stay safe with my comrades on the ground, having guns in our face constantly. Right. And so, I mean, the 6th of January shouldn't have surprised anyone. I mean, those militias have been on the ground solid for a year. Um, and the police have done absolutely nothing. The National Guard has done nothing. Um, the, I mean, the FBI, of course, has reported throughout the past several years that the most dangerous threat to security in America are white nationalist movements. But, uh, you know, but that, that same government doesn't give a damn because they've been in the streets. Um, and I, I'm thinking about in Louisville, Kentucky, um, I'm trying to remember these days kind of run together, but I think it was in September. Maybe it was a Saturday. Um, but this huge presence showed up of these like white nationalist militias. Um, there were probably at the time, maybe 30 of us on the ground that morning at Injustice Park um, defending the Breonna Taylor Memorial. Um, because we had every reason to believe from their communications that they were going to come in to try to tear that down. And they showed up armed, like I said, by the hundreds. And if you've ever been in, in that square, um, there are police and court buildings surrounding it. And behind us, there were like sheriff's deputies standing and watching everything. And once these militias rolled in, several hundred deep, again, probably 500 of them. The sheriff's deputies literally turned around, walked back into the building and shut the door. Mm. And I mean, we, and we've seen the National Guard um, deployed into Louisville over and over. I mean, that, they've made that look like a police state, um, but never turning that force on the armed militias. Um, right. We were the ones who were always targeted with that. And so that's, that's what we spent the whole year of 2020 seeing. Um, yeah, and it, it's really intense. And on January the 6th, those same quote-unquote patriots, you know, Trump's army told everyone exactly what they were going to do. It's like it's exactly the same thing. They're being very public and describing what they're planning for the 17th and the 20th. No one should be surprised. And they did exactly what they said they were going to do. Um, and I was talking to a friend who said, well, but I mean, surely they won't do that. I mean, you don't tell everybody what you're going to do and then do it. And of course they will. That's what they've done the whole time. Like, because they know there's no real resistance. Um, they know that the Capitol police, look, people's, you know, I, I've heard commentators say, well, they tried to resist them. They were just overwhelmed. Let me tell you, I know what resistance by the police and by the national guard when they're determined to stop you from doing something looks like on the ground and it wasn't present, mm -hmm. you know, and now supposedly they're calling in 15,000 national guard troops for the inauguration. Well, what's interesting is that like some of the current plans that it looks like for these groups to move back in, um, is they're aiming for a critical mass of 15,000. 
They're saying so they can put 4,000 at the Capitol, 4,000 at the White House, 4,000 at the Supreme Court, and the rest for roadblocks. And what they're communicating now is that any initiation of gunfire or force against them will be considered an act of war, at which point they will consider themselves as entering into a civil war. And if, if we're picking that up and if we're reading it, <laughs> variations, I mean, so does the Department of Defense, which so far has only showed us that it's going to stand down. Right. And I, you know, I've been saying um, since I've sort of seen and felt the extremism emerge prior to 2016, we can see the growing division um, and how how oppositional our politics have become. And I have been saying for years, I feel like we're on the cusp of civil war. And, you know, I, I finally started putting out on social media, we can't legislate our way out of this. We can't fund our way out of this. White supremacy has been occupying the nation since its inception. And so, you know, these militias um, are very much winning because they're, you know, the, the ways in which they've strategized on, on the, on the heels of the occupation of white supremacy. And because, because our government is complicit in the acceleration of white supremacy, there's no way out of this from, from a, a government standpoint, right? And and a lot of the a lot. I mean, our our armed um, guard, our armed military, our armed police are in almost every case active or passive sympathizers to the militia. I mean, you know. We are we are not not only are we seeing the the divergence, but we're also seeing, you know, a, a, a passive or a, a la the lack of care on the part of those who, quote, are supposed to protect us because they are already sympathizers with those who are infiltrating and and uh, trying to overthrow, you know, overthrow our, our state houses and our capital. I think I think that is absolutely correct. I mean, I don't think that can be said loudly enough. Um, there is a reason why we're demanding to defund the police. Look, all you have to do, um, and I would invite any listener to do this. Um, I've done this multiple times. Drive through the parking lot of any police precinct. Drive through the parking lot of any prison or local jail. Look at the cars that are there and look at the stickers on the car. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, what the hell message is trying to be communicated when your stickers are of a black and white American flag with one blue stripe and a Punisher emblem over the top. I mean, what, I mean, it's very clear what's being communicated there. And, and these are the same, I mean, you see the exact same images, I mean, associated on the ground where we're dealing with militia. Um, what was the meme I've seen recently? Um, how come, Hannah Montana and, and Miley Cyrus are never in the same place at the same time, right? <laughs> I mean, there is a reason. Um, I think there's a great deal, not just a sympathy, um, but I think that our police 
um, our prison system, um, the National Guard, our military. I think there are, are I think that it is rife with white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and individual tech members. Yeah. They're complicit and they're part of it. They're right. absolutely. And, and it's not all of them. No, but I think what that leads to then is a split, right? Right. Um, which again, Robin, uh, as you were pointing out, I don't, I agree with you completely. I don't see any way around this. Um, and I think after the six, people will be hard put to look at either one of us and say, this is exaggerating the situation and you're actually mm-hmm. making it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, because no, we, people had better be ready for this and think about what this really means. So let's talk a little bit about what being ready might look like. Um, you know, there, there have, um, for, for years now, um, many of us who have been, you know, doing work in the streets or have been, you know, kind of pushing back and kind of intentionally antagonizing the status quo, um, have understood a need to prepare both, um, kind of physically with, you know, actual things in our homes preparation, but also prepare our minds and our um, bodies for a shift in potential tactic to, uh, you know, where, where we, where we need to head with this. I mean, you know, your, your Facebook post very clearly, you know, asked a question, um, you know, are you, going to, um, uh, are you going to participate in community defense? Um, are you, are you a medic? Um, can you provide financial support? Can you provide a safe house? Um, help, help again, kind of connect the dots between what we know and have seen over the last four years and, and possibly more than that, um, accelerating into this past year and now coming to um, a place where preparation is not only suggested, but really is essential. What would you suggest preparation look like um, for those of us that are that are listening and and have and have used our privilege to not have to think about this kind of thing before. Um, sure, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we've learned uh, being in the street is like what it, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like first. Um, they and, and this goes into a whole other discussion, which we can have. <laughs> some other time and I would recommend multiple guests with different points of view. Um, but they have us significantly outgunned. They're, they're much better armed than people are. Um, they, um, have been preparing for this, a lot of them for a long time, right? Cause they've been angling for this civil war. And so right. in some ways we're very much reacting, but we have to be able to do more than react. Um, so with community defense, you know, Let's say they take over the state capital on the 17th, the 18th, or the 19th or 20th. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean, probably doesn't mean that we can meet them there in any sort of armed resistance. Um, because, again, they've been training for this um, and we're significantly outgunned. But I think what we should expect is like a long war <laughs> of attrition. Um, and it has to look more like resistance on the ground um, in Central and South America, right? You brought that er- up earlier, Robin. I mean, yeah. we need to look. There are examples of this 
and it looks much more, you know, um, I don't know what to say except for more like guerrilla warfare when it comes to defense and figuring out how to keep our community safe. Understand what it is, the basic needs. So water filtration systems, um, a, a network of medics, you know, medical care, um, supplies of food, um, ham radios. I mean, there have to be other forms of communication um, if those communication systems go down. And you know what's crazy is I'm saying this to you and I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, people are going to hear this and think, what is she talking about? But right. I, <laughs> I had that conversation with, I had that conversation with a few friends the other day and I said, you know, yeah. um, just a, just a couple of pointers, like maybe go get some cash out of the back, uh, out yep. of the bank. And maybe, you know, maybe, um, you know, make sure you've got batteries in your house for, you know, a portable radio that you might. And they looked at me like I had eight heads. <laughs> have, have generators, if you can get a generator. Um, again, like we said, financially support those who are active on the ground in community, community defense and resistance. And the other thing that we will need are safe houses. Um, and, you know, safe houses, a, a house where known uh, activists and anti-fascists live, pro tip, that is not a safe house, right? right. <laughs> I mean, a safe house is someone who is down that most people may not realize it, right? They're down in a quiet way. They're not expected. Um, you know, so establishing networks, um, like that, um, networks, and we've we've participated in some of this before, um, and you know having to get having to move people out of a location quickly so that they could um, escape ICE and escape deportation and right, um, right escape con confinement in those camps. Um, and so, basically, it is building an underground in multiple ways, um, and so. You know, it, what's interesting is that a lot of um, leftists I know have been watching this and we've been preparing and thinking about this. And and now it's like a lot of folks are going to, the middle, I mean, here's the problem. I listened to Brian Williams on MSNBC, you know, the day after, I think it was on the 7th, say, uh, will the center hold? Yes, we know the center has held and American democracy is going to triumph because they did, you know, hold the vote and they did confirm the election and I just laughed, right? Because people are so desperate for that to be true, for the center right. to be safe and everything to be okay. And it's not. And so people are going to have to make decisions about where they are. Are they going to be complicit in fascism, keep their heads down and, and hope to write it out? I mean, Franco was in power in, in Spain for, you know, how many years? Over 50 years, you know? Yeah. Um, or are you going to engage in a really smart prolonged resistance. Um, and if I can, um, if, if it's okay, just to really quickly read this quick quote by Naomi Shulman um, that I posted. And I think it's so important um, because, you know, I think we have to be aware of the way that narratives are going to be spun um, and the very Orwellian, I think, news reports we should expect to see. But she says, nice people made the best Nazis. Mm -hmm. My mom grew up next to them. They got along, refused to make waves, looked the other way when things got ugly, and focused on happier things than politics. They were lovely people who turned their heads as their neighbors were dragged away. You know who weren't nice people? Resistors. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> we've been told this notion of respectability politics, and it's important to be polite, to be good neighbors. Um, 
the way to be a good neighbor under fascism is to fight fascism um, yes. and, and to understand where your place in that is. You know, I, I'm, um, I'm a big believer in, in a diversity of tactics and that resistance has to look like a variety of things. And it, it, uh, it occurs to me that extremism in an extremist politics is has its roots and foundation in oppositional politics and the logic of us against them. And, and I wonder if we have the social courage to get out of that hamster wheel, which feels to be fueling um, extremism. And I just feel curious what your thoughts are on that, that fighting fascism um, is also a fight against a kind of political future that doesn't serve anyone. And then how do we actually steward a better political future in this moment? Hmm. It's funny. It's the thing with podcasts, right? The format is you really want to be able to think about some things um, before you respond to them. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's very tricky, right? Because I think that at this moment, um, and there are a lot of reasons why we've gotten here that we could discuss, yeah. but we're in the ultimate right now of oppositional politics, <laughs> I mean, a, a civil war is pretty much the ultimate yeah, um, yeah. with that. Um, and trying to understand how we create a future um, to get beyond that um, and to think about what a future would look like where the goal really was to provide the common good for everyone, to um, to end our centuries-long history of white supremacy and capitalism. Um, and I think, you know, to some degree, this begins in what community resistance looks like. Um, because we have to reimagine um, what community, or not just reimagine what we mean by community safety, we have to live it for the first time, right? right? In mutual aid and support. And so I think that informing a comprehensive resistance with a multiplicity of tactics. I agree with you completely about that. Um, begins to form the structure of what we can grow and nurture and hopefully move toward beyond this moment that we're in. Um, I mean, literally thinking about different structures and forms of what a political body looks like, right? Yeah. Something beyond a two-party system. Um, and, and having the courage also in the future in the way we communicate, um, to be very forthright about what we're seeing, right. To stop being so polite. I mean, I think that in, in some ways we are where we are today because it took so long before yeah. the mainstream would start like naming what we were seeing. 
Right. You know, we've only we've only heard the fascist word in the mainstream media used recently um, with regards to Trump. I mean, really, since the election. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so we have to be. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I think that's what the hope is. I think it does come out of a resistance movement. And I think that and here's the thing is we don't have to completely reinvent the wheel. Um, right. I think that history has shown us how to move forward with this, what it can look like. Um, this summer I had a small reading group um, and we were reading um, Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. Um, and there were so many similarities. And then I think about Spain today and what it looks like and the shift and the change and the progress that has been made in their culture and society beyond fascism um, and how um a resistance and a resistant community and local structures that were made contributed to what the national um, body politic looks like today. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Jane, uh, there, I know, right. There's so much, there's so much to, to talk about. There's so much to unpack. There's so much work to be done. And, and yet um, I, I'm, thankful that you've given us this hour of your time, Jeannie, and and helped our listeners kind of understand both how we have arrived at this place and what their role is moving forward in kind of getting their hands dirty in the movement. Friends, you can follow Jeannie Alexander at her Facebook page, at Jeannie Alexander. We encourage you to do so. A large majority of her posts are public, uh, especially the ones that we think you need to pay attention to. We're grateful that Jeannie spent some time with us today, and we encourage you to stay in touch with her and to follow what she has to say on Facebook. Her work is important, and her voice is one that we really need to be listening to right now. This conversation today, friends, may have made you extremely uncomfortable. It may have brought up things for you that you um, haven't thought you had to think about. Um, but we're grateful for partners in this work like Jeannie Alexander, who are giving us a framework for which we um, can understand how to move forward and how to do so in a way that's intentional and that will benefit um, our collective liberation. Um, Dr. Robin, I thank you once again for spending this hour with me. Thanks for your camaraderie. And um, there is much work to do. If you want to follow Activist Theology Podcast or the Activist Theology Podcast, project, please reach out to us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And until then, Dr. Robin. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Oh,
we know.